nobody's stupid enough to think that they know all the answers and have it right. And um, like everything that, that has meaning, um, we'll only get better if we listen and learn from each other and, and also avoid being defensive. You know, you cannot turn a deaf ear to voices that rightfully are demanding to be heard within your organisation. Hello and welcome back to this first episode of a brand new series of Media Voices. We're the media-focused podcast that takes a look at all the news and the views from the media world over the past week. Uh, I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that clip you just heard was from our first interview of 2023. It's me talking to Richard Reeves, CEO of the Association of Online Publishers here in the UK, about diversity and inclusion in media. Now, the irony of two older white dudes discussing issues of diversity was not lost on either of us. Uh, but what I took away from the chat was that we, well, we especially have a responsibility to be open-minded, to challenge our peers, to encourage everyone to open their eyes to the opportunities that diversity and inclusion can bring. And it was a good chat, so. I mean, there's, there's some ageism stuff in there as well, right? Yeah, we talked about ages. I still, I still makes me feel a bit weird. But that's the ageism thing. The point with the ageism thing is it's specifically or particularly uh, older women that find it hard to get back in to the workplace. So yeah, it was a great chat. It was really good. I just saw Tamsin Althwaite tweet about. Oh yeah, saw yeah. So before we get onto that cheery chat, uh, we're going to go through our news roundup. And this week, the big news has been the publication of the Reuters Institute's latest predictions piece. Really? So not that book? <laughs> <laughs> we're not talking about that, at least this week. Uh, the Reuters Institute has published its latest journalism, media and technology trends and predictions after surveying 300 plus media executives from all around the world. Esther, what would you say are some of those top level insights that you've taken away from it? Confidence. <laughs> Not great. As lack of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's um I think it's seventy five percent at the start of last year and people sort of feeling relatively confident about the year. Um that is now down to forty four percent, which given well given the world is um is not entirely surprising. Um another probably not a particular surprise to anybody is that subscriptions uh they're seen as the most important revenue stream for eighty percent of publishers. Um but actually, the majority of them are still expecting some or a lot of growth in subscriptions and paid content income this year. So I don't know if that's – is that that people are, are sort of still quite new to it, so there's still a lot of mileage to go? Or are people that are more established sort of looking at it and saying, no, there's there's still ways we can attract people, you know, people still wanted to sign up? Um, it sort of goes counter, I suppose, to a lot of the stuff we were discussing later last yeah. year about – a slowdown, maybe even a reduction. Like a lot, of, a lot of publishers don't know. They're saying, "Well, no, we expect it to continue." So <laughs> Peter, that's great. Peter seems unsure. I think there's a there's a factor here that is not Reuters' fault at all, but there's a lag, right? They do the research towards the end of 2022, mm. and this the stuff with uh, the cost of living crisis and, and inflation, particularly, was really just starting to come through at the end, you know, the last quarter. But I think when when we discussed. Our special episode, our podcast, uh, our subscription special episode, that must have been in sort of September, October. It was like a lot of people already forecasting that then. It takes people a while to change their minds. <laughs> I wonder if there's also a peer pressure <laughs> to yeah, be seen to be going yeah, like, absolutely. We, yeah, we've still got headroom for growth. Absolutely. But it does kind of fly in the face of a piece we included in the newsletter not too long ago that was talking about 
this year is going to be the year where people focus on revenue per user rather than growing the mm. user base. That's where the, the, the writing, the, the text of this is actually quite interesting because it's, it's not that um, they see a lot of growth in subscriber numbers. It's that they see a growth, growth in paid content income. So is it that, you know, they're not going to focus on the, the cut price deals and all that and it's possibly fewer subscribers but more income from that? Um, so, yeah, I think the, the wording yeah, there that makes leaves sense. that open that, to interpretation. That totally makes sense. And there's actually a really good piece by Lucinda Southern and Adweek this week talking about that kind of meshing of um, first-party data coming out of subscriptions and advertising, so premium advertising sales sort of bolstered by uh, subscription data. Mm. I think that's, you know, obviously coming from a million years ago when advertising actually was more interesting. Um, I think that that is actually a really interesting angle on this, that subscription data is going to support advertising revenue. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, before we move on to... Uh, formats and where we see you know growth in terms of media and where people are actually going to spend more of their time what do we think about bundling because there's something in there about <laughs> this idea that we're going to be seeing a lot more bundles well we had a fight about this at the start of the year didn't we <laughs> well calling it a fight i think it's a bit strong <laughs> but we definitely had a uh what was it what's the diplomatic what did they call it disagreement Ro- a robust exchange <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean what reuters is saying is Bundling is going to be a big deal. But, you know, this being magnanimous, because I actually won. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Esther's point is not She's not wrong. She's just not as right as I am. <laughs> they're not mutually exclusive things. No, they're, they're absolutely they're, not. There are thousands of publishers out there experiment, experiment with lots of different things. Now, my point, and this this was in my Niminab prediction, is that um, I think because of the pressures, and, and we have seen this already with Publishers like the FT, they've got their FT Edit app, which is like a 99p app. Um, gosh, Tor- yeah, Tortoise have gone and done like subscriber-only podcasts on Apple, which are you think were directly in conflict with their main um, membership revenue, but actually they've sort of ended up being a bit of a, a conversion thing. Mm. Um, is that publishers are sort of looking for ways to entice people to try paid content with them that isn't necessarily the full subscription? And I, I still think we'll see a lot more of that this year. One of the things that I think we, we were all – interested in because obviously we have a vested interest in is this idea that podcasts are still seen as being high up the agenda so we've seen that uh podcasts and newsletters are where a lot of publishers say they're going to be putting more resources this year but they're both about 70 percent right yeah exactly they're all kind of hovering around that very very positive number for us (laughs) um but peter there's you've put something in here about finite formats so what is that I think it was interesting that the chatting around this was obviously the opportunity, which is, um, we'll, we'll, we'll end up talking about the revenue side of this in a minute, but engagement and audience growth and all that is really, really positive. And I think that's what people are seeing in both podcasts and newsletters. But this idea that these are finite formats, it's, you know, whether it's once a week or once a day, they're bounded. You go in, you read it or you listen to it. And it's, it's it's not it's not easier. It's harder in so many ways because you can't just fire crap out all the time and and you know hopefully something in among that will land. You've actually got to think about what is your edition, what is your episode, what's going to be in there, and, and you've got to engage people in that box. Mm. But I think that's what that's what that's the beauty of publishing. That's what's so amazing about publishing. Is that what? idea of targeting rather than just this constant stream of stuff? 
I thought you were going to say, what's amazing about publishing is that it's totally cyclical. And in four oh, years' yeah, time, we're going to be back true. to that fire hose thing. In fact, isn't it interesting no, 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 that no, no. only this week we've seen, you know, complete disintegration of the valuations of places like BuzzFeed, which did rely on that fire hose type thing. And yet it's kind of those addition-based digital outlets that are doing better. It's actually a comment Nick made. So, so one of the other predictions that came up is that um, it was about AI. Mm. And um, I, I feel like that, there's been a bit of a sea change in that in the last couple of months. Like now everybody can sort of see where it's going. And I think it, it's, it's pointing towards that fire hose thing. AI is just going to be used to, to feed that fire hose. Um, and Nick, Nick sort of he he said that he predicted there was going to be this huge explosion of automated or semi-automated media in the next few years, for good or ill. And he actually said this is where publishers have got the the opportunity to really prove the value of the human edit like human editing and curation. And there's there's absolutely no harm in using AI to to supplement, but that the, the the human value will really come to the forefront as we sort of learn to navigate just this new landscape where we we don't know what's been written by a human and what hasn't. But this is where humans are awful, right? <laughs> right, okay. No, dis- no disagreement. Well, because you know what's going on in so many boardrooms and, and management offices. Like, oh, my God, this is good enough that we can get rid of the humans. It's not like, oh, this is an opportunity to supplement the work that our humans do. It's like, this is a chance to get rid of the humans. Uh, it but should you know be what you're a- saying about emotion and the fact that the AI can't sort of distinguish or properly yeah, put up and, emotion and also reporting mm-hmm. ai know ai can only know what's already known yeah whereas a reporting going and finding stuff out well ai doesn't have shoes to go out and do that shoe leather journalism yeah but i think <laughs> I, was, I was reading about you know we've got chat gpt3 and i was reading some of the stuff about gpt4 which God. is I mean, just the sheer amount of data to which that has access. I, the the stat that got thrown around was, if you feed it one single sentence prompt, it will write a novel length, <laughs> sort of like exploration of that, or, um, or a memoir, perhaps. or a memoir. Yeah. <laughs> so there's there's a publication on CNET, uh, I think yesterday or maybe two days ago, talking about how they're using AI, and they said exactly that they're using the term very consciously AI assist. What they want to use AI for is just kind of getting rid of that rote stuff, so that the uh, the journalists can focus on actually going out and writing stuff and also and I mean, talking to the, people. There's been some stuff that has come up that because the AI is is being fed everything, that it's also not right. Like it churns out stuff that is is not correct, and that yeah, yes, I know humans can can technically do that, but you do still need that human oversight to be like, yeah, this is this is. I saw some really good examples on Twitter over Christmas where that asked. That asked uh, ChatGTP some some questions and it it just given them the wrong answers and then like doubled down on it. It's like, okay, this is starting to sound quite human now. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me like AI a lot more. <laughs> That's humanized it for me. That the fact that it fucked up and then was too embarrassed to back down. I think we're going to need the humans for a bit yet. The humans. The humans. So just before we move on, platforms not high up on the agenda according to Reuters. So Facebook received a minus thirty net score in planning for publishers. That seems high to me again. Twitter, obviously under the cosh, is only minus twenty eight. Whereas others are getting positive scores. Obviously TikTok. I don't know how wise it is to be putting resources into TikTok quite yeah, at the moment. One. Not in terms of you know the audience being there, but just in terms of regulatory stuff coming down the pipe. Uh, search Instagram and YouTube are all positive. I think people are just tired of Facebook's crap. Mm. 
Is it news or is it not news? Or is there a tab or is there not a tab? Are we doing newsletters? Are we not doing newsletters? And I think people have just gone, you know what? This is just too much. We, mm. There's too much change here. There's not enough consistency in terms of either audience or earning money. It's one of the reasons I'm surprised that Facebook got a lower score than Twitter because yeah. Twitter, to me, surely like the, the the concern there over the audiences and the, and the long-term aspect of that is even, even more pressing than Facebook. Although, although it is 2023 and it is still here. And, it, and you know, if you listen to, to you, uh, what's his knob? Elmo. Um, oh, Elon. <laughs> um, his audience is growing and engagement is growing. It's just it's all nut jobs. <laughs> I don't yeah. Know. That fantastic joke that people get making when whenever Elon says, oh, you know, engagement on Twitter's never been higher, is people going like, Oh yeah, my house may be on fire, but there's a lot of people in the yard watching it burn. <laughs> and Peter, you mentioned the metaverse there. Uh, that has fallen right off publishers' interest. Um, so digital video has seen an increase in priority, but the metaverse, AR and VR have dropped from 8% last year in terms of interest down to 5% this year. And I one thing that's actually really good because without the hype, publishers can do appropriately sized experiments within those spaces yeah. because the user base is growing albeit very slowly, without that hype of, oh, we've got to be in the metaverse, we can actually see some genuinely good experiments that might deliver a little bit of revenue rather than just going absolutely mental with some of the worst design things I've ever seen in my entire life. That holds true for the whole Web3 mm. type of thing, you know, <laughs> with NFTs and uh, tokens and all that seems to have kind of slid off the agenda. It's that cycle, isn't it? You get like the massive hype and then you get the, is it the trough of disillusionment and then you actually get into the <laughs> the actual use cases and, and how it can actually be of use. I was slightly surprised at the digital video increase because that's, that showed an increase in priority. Where are people putting that if Facebook TikTok. is sort of over-promising? Yeah, TikTok, uh, some YouTube, new stuff. YouTube. Yeah. Okay, so that's, that's, a, that's back to the social video. And moving on to our news in brief podcasts. You'll listen to one right now, and they're both one of the biggest and best opportunities for publishers this year. <gasps> and also one of the biggest losers as the recession begins to bite. Uh, how do you square that circle? Well, the former assertion comes from YouGov, which states that 13% of respondents from the UK said that they're going to increase their use of podcasts this year. While the latter comes from a vulture survey of people working in the podcasting space. So on the one hand, we have people going like, absolutely, audience is going to grow like massively it's going to be the next great space for journalism and entertainment and all this kind of stuff and on the other hand you have people like who are actually working in it like us going like oh my god this year is going to be an absolute nightmare um but there's actually no contradiction in those two assertions one is about kind of the audience growth and i think that they're right there's going to be a huge growth this year um and the other is around monetization it's the same kind of like a confidence you're seeing across all advertising right mm-hmm I mean, can I just use that as a segue into my little nib this week? Uh, please do. Uh, because Ben, well, what was interesting was Ben Smith's first newsletter of the year, his media newsletter for Semaphore, um, which he actually put out on the 1st of January, which is come on her- now, ben. Herculean <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Um, he probably wrote it in that van. He, he He's talking about optimism. He said in his first line, it's a strange time to be optimistic about global media, but he is. And he lists a bunch of you know, six reasons for his New Year cheer. Uh, I mean, the, the list that he does is pretty niche. 
in the sense that he's got a revival on local news, he got rises of Apple TV, talks about China, Substacks, which is Substacks about China rather than Substacks from <laughs> China for obvious reasons. Um, proper real world skepticism in crypto journalism. On uh, a return, I thought this was a stretch and a little bit. A return to alternative voices on Twitter. <laughs> so it's, it's not just the big publisher players or the big uh, personalities. It's like people that have got a different point of view. Which yeah, wow. okay, but <laughs> to be <laughs> who fair, are, right? Who are they? To be fair to Ben, there's you know when I was writing about the death of Twitter last year, I was interviewing people who were from Black Twitter, and. Yeah, my my feed yeah, doesn't yeah. intersect with with theirs even a little bit, really. Yeah. But it is still a vital yeah. community hub for a lot of people in Black Twitter. So potentially he's talking about that. I don't know. Yeah, no, it was that kind of thing. It was like activists and people with a different point of view. But he also talked about aggregators. There's a new he sees a new crop of aggregators that are doing some interesting stuff, and you know around niche topics like entertainment movies stuff like that mm. what was what all of that is interesting but his headline reason i thought was actually spot on and he talks about the death of the media monoculture which we've just spoken about right it's that idea mm-hmm. that people are moving away from platforms uh and dealing with their own audiences um and i thought that was really interesting that idea that okay we're not going to we're not going to tell you what we think you want to hear we're actually going to engage with you and find out what you want to hear, and then we're going to publish into that space. And I think that's really interesting. That's a nice idea. That does so there you go, a little bit of optimism. <laughs> that does remind me of something. Um, gosh, I'm going to cite him again. Brian Morrissey wrote earlier in the year. Brian Morrissey does a really good newsletter called The Rebooting, which is why we cite him so often. <laughs> but he must have written something about halfway through last year where he said about um, the fact that recessions were actually good for publishers. Um, it was that sort of thing that, like, when the tide goes out, you you see us swimming <laughs> naked. Um, but he, he he was sort of his point was that in good times you can actually get sort of a bit sloppy with business practices or things you maybe sort of need to do that you end up cooking down the road, whereas recessions sort of force you to be lean to focus on what actually matters and to and to really I forgot what the term was he used it wasn't right size but it, it was it was focus on what matters not just um yeah the sort of bloating and stuff that that can go on so yeah that 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 reminded me of that. Well, we've had podcasts, we've had optimism. I thought I should throw in some newsletters. <laughs> um, no, my, my the interesting bit of news that caught my eye this week was that um, Reach, which is a, um, are they the biggest local news publisher in the UK or the second biggest? Now they are, yeah. Now they're the biggest. Uh, so they are adopting, nine of their brands are adopting what they call a newsletter-led approach, um, meaning that the websites are no longer their flagship means of content delivery, according to Press Gazette. Um, so they trialed this model with um, five regions in November, and they're adding four more to it now. Um, they've said that there's no job losses on those sites due to changing that model, but they've also announced that the same week that they've announced 200 redundancies across the business, so make of that what you will. Um, yeah, just <laughs> when I was sort of reading the press piece, it was interesting that it, it's, it is a better model than chasing page views, web traffic, and that sort of thing, but they still do have targets. <laughs> But I was actually quite confused about how those newsletters worked. Um, so when I when I went on some of the pages to to look into this, um, if you go on the Norfolk one, Norfolk Live, there's like a daily news update for Norfolk, which is you know great. That that's your local news newsletter. But they've also got newsletters for England football, NFL, which I think is hmm. American. It is. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I don't. <laughs> um, Bake Off, which as far as I finished a couple of months ago. <laughs> 
TV and film and more. And, and I, it was just this thing that I, I assume those generalist ones of being sort of produced and promoted across the business, not exclusively by the Norfolk teams. Um, yeah, and, and when I went on some of the other local titles, some of them had like triple the number of newsletters on offer. So it's just, it was curious. And I'm, I'm a bit curious to see, is, is this just early days of the newsletter strategy or? I love the idea of a Norfolk only newsletter for yeah. people. That's just brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I've got, I, I'm properly, properly conflicted about this one because I think it's a really, really good idea. Uh, in in the sense of delivering properly local content, you know, it's it's by definition you've opted into it. I want to know about Norfolk or wherever the other ones are, mm. so uh, you don't need to have the stories that reach us sometimes about someone's McDonald's getting stole in the world when the actual site is Birmingham. Um, so that's good. I just can't figure out how they're going to monetize these at the same level that they monetize the websites because those websites are absolute advertising <laughs> factories. Yeah. So how do they monetize? If there's no web or a limited web presence, how do they monetize these well, newsletters? Yeah, we need to see what it looks like in practice, right? I mean, for all we can talk about, you know, it being the primary source of, of news and kind of that primary destination, what does that actually look like? Because they're not going to abandon the websites. No, it was about it was about sort of what is the flagship. It's not that they're not published on the websites. It's that I suppose the priority shifted. And like they, they talk about the fact that it's they want to build these sort of more loyal, more local users. But I think the, the thing that that this really flagged to me is that how much truly local. Like if if you sign up for the Norfolk newsletter, um, you know, I did go on. There's like there's and they're sending this twice a day. Is there actually enough? local news to justify like if you're not investing in your local news reporting mm. are you going to end up with alternative stories slipping in yeah. there and people being like well this isn't relevant Absolutely. to me and unsubscribing yeah. and I think, like they've, they've got various metrics you know, this is still very very early days and they've got various metrics to hopefully try and counteract that but that kind of product requires investment in your local reporting and it has to be local because otherwise people will unsubscribe so it, it is a bit of an antithesis to what reach have been doing over the last two years which is very much not that so I don't quite know how the product is going to have any content to support it at the rate they're going. Well, I mean, talked to Joshy Herman about exactly that. Yeah, right? I was just going to yeah. mention him. On one hand, if I was, you know, I was just thinking about this. On one hand, if I was him, I'd be thinking, oh, my God, Reach is coming for their lunch. <laughs> and on the other hand, I'd be thinking, yeah, bring it, because you will just do a crappy job, mm. and we will look amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 that what this launch is at, is at odds with the other stuff they've been doing over the last few years. So, so one of the... Paths is going to have to give at some point. This week I spoke with Richard Reeves, CEO of the AOP, about diversity and inclusion in media. We talked about efforts to improve DE&I, problems of retention and about how ageism impacts women particularly. I started by asking Richard if he thought the media deserves its reputation as an industry that can be unwelcoming of people who are not straight, white, male, middle class, and able bodied. Is the answer just yes for about ten minutes? I, I guess it is. It's not something that we're particularly proud about, but um, and I think collectively as an industry, there's a lot of work uh, being done to to address that perception. But yeah. it doesn't come 
without some substance. Um, I think often, and, and there are other industries that that probably ask similar questions, but you know, it, it, it's really about people feeling comfortable that they are that they belong in an industry and 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 that they themselves can see themselves represented within that industry and and I guess a bit like the financial services historically the media um has um gravitated towards their own we had a session earlier this year where we had a number of contributing speakers but um one um initiative that that I do admire which I also um, feel very passionately that, that everybody within our industry should should be a part of, is the um, ISBA, um, all-in uh, census. Well, not ISBA, the Advertising Association specifically, but Bobby Carley, who, who is part of uh, the Diversity and Inclusion uh, programme run at ISBA and is actually the lead on that. She, she um, shared some um, statistics at our... Um, session uh, which came directly from the all-in census that was obviously conducted um, um, earlier in the year and it was interesting I mean it surveyed over 16,000 advertising and marketing professionals to understand really the state of play in terms of representation within the industry and and um, and you can't sugarcoat those findings they're they're, they're statistics they, mm-hmm. they exist and and you know the findings really suggested that Around 32% of black people, 20%, 27% of Asian people, and 20% of people with disabilities said so they they would leave this industry because they don't feel that they belong. Um, and we also had um, another speaker who's a, a lead at Brand Metrics and and part of the um, uh, Media for All program, and 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 they also shared very very similar insights that were. Um, not something to be particularly proud of. I mean, there there is very definitely progress in recruitment of more diverse talent, um, but many still feel that there isn't enough being done um, within their companies to, to help these people thrive. Many feel that they don't have the same equal opportunities to progress. Um, and uh, training and development sometimes is, 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 is um, a bit challenging in terms of being eloquently programmed towards their needs so so yes i think it's it's fair for you to state state that peter but i also would like to temper that with an observation um when you have initiatives like all in census and you have the all in hub which is now providing sort of support like the nine step action and various other things there is clearly a commitment and some progress being made, and there is definitely the will and the want, certainly amongst the community that we work with. Um, I would suggest that every um, organisation within there is on a journey, some at different places, some being more effective than others. But um, the, the heartening uh, uh, conclusion from from the fact that they're all on journeys for for the benefit of the listeners to this is that they are also sharing their learnings and their experiences and benefiting from sharing uh, Mm. and benefiting those that they're trying to serve through sharing because um, nobody's stupid enough to think that they know all the answers and have it right. (sighs) And um, like everything that that has meaning um, will only get better if we listen and learn from each other and and also avoid being defensive. You know, you cannot turn a deaf ear 
to voices that rightfully are demanding to be heard within your organisation. And so we are, we're, we're not going to get there overnight, but we are on journeys and we are definitely um, acknowledging that we can do better and keen to, to learn from others and the support of some really amazing external organisations. We at AOP have been working with a number um, over these last three or four years. We started to work with Project 23. We introduced them to our HR steering group. More recently, we've been obviously working uh, with another organisation called Get Zen, and these are these are people that effectively come from our, within our own industry, but have. Um, um, evolved, if you like, to provide services to to through their own commitment to 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 create change and and their experiences um, are are informing the approach of these organisations. Well, I spoke. I've spoken in the past to Gary. Uh, uh, Gary, uh, yeah, fantastic Gary. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and the stuff that he's he talks about. What I think is the interesting part of this is it's real world. It's not theory. It's not just oh, let's do this because it's a nice thing to do. It's very much about you know organisational sustainability and effectiveness in the end. If I asked you what does a truly diverse staff look like, is there a picture there or is that still an aspiration? It's interesting. I I there are definitely there are definitely um bright lights um, that I could direct you to that I see as real examples yeah. within the, within organizations um, a number of publishers are working with for example Ali Owen who runs um, the Brixton finishing school and that is an organization that's very committed to um, uh, addressing this and supporting organizations and we again at one of our sessions earlier in the year we had two graduates that had come through brixton that are now employees at um the uh, mail metro uh, media group and ryan uh all who who um is obviously uh, a senior figure within that organization and, and somebody who actually represents that organization within AAP's board. He's very much a champion um, uh, at, at driving this change. And we, we heard case studies, um, testimonials from, from both of these graduates about their journey into that organization and also testimonials from Ryan about how um, they have um, directly impacted the graduates, the, the thinking, um, the approach, and 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 the process um, within those organisations. So there are some fantastic examples, but I think I mean what you touched on is 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 really um, that accountability, and I think um, it still can be pretty challenging if not devastating for new hires to discover that the you know employees have sort of brought them in as part of the tick box exercise so so you you know i think the caution and and, and the lesson learned from most organizations is is that you know we need to be sure that we can walk the walk if you like and and that comes down to making sure that you have you talked about gary and a number of other practitioners out there who are who are equipped to provide the support, then there are the industry commitments, as I touched on earlier, such as ad associations all in. You know, it, it, it's harder for, for an organisation 
to be ignorant and not make the appropriate provision now when you have very simple resources to guide you, like the nine-step action plan that, that comes out from, from this all-in hub. But I think the, the, the bit that we haven't said, but I think you've kind of alluded to, is that um, it needs to be a company-wide commitment. Um, it's, you know, when you are adopting policies um, for uh, uh, you know, better address uh, in terms of diversity and inclusion and, and indeed equity as well. You can't have the same people meeting every month. I think that um, we, we, we also, you know, recognise that, that whilst we may be appearing to uh, be developing the right approach in terms of attracting more diverse um, um, representation within our organisations at entry level, you know, we have to continue to to hold the light on ourselves and ask, is, is this being done at board level? Can, you know, can you honestly say that this approach is reflected throughout the organisation? Can these people coming in at entry level see themselves reflected throughout their organisation? And when I talk about, you know, not just the same people meeting every month, but with, with no, you know, they, they, you in the past historically, the... The, um, the you know there was a an inclination to sort of gravitate towards right. Well, now we've got got people who who represent different communities within our organisation. Let's let's bring them together every month so that they can sort of chat amongst themselves. If they're not empowered to then expand that conversation so that everybody is a part of that conversation and is touched by it. Um, then, then nothing will change. So, so to affect the change, everybody from with that authority coming from the very top down needs to feel empowered um, to be in a position to to be able to truly represent and also to be supported by by the necessary resources in order to achieve that. So, there is more we can do. But it's about learning the best way to do it. And I think one of the, 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 the starting points for every organisation is to look at itself at every level. And um, for this to succeed, it, it really needs to be um, a culture driven from the very top. I mean, there's a certain irony in you and me talking about this, you know, given that we're both white men of a certain age. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you think, that just the very fact that it is people, you know, it is mostly white males, older white males that are running the show mm. for good or for, for ill, that's where a lot of this focus needs to be. You know, I don't think there's a, I'm not saying there's a lot of, uh, there's a, a reluctance to take on these DNI initiatives, but not being reluctant is different from being enthusiastic. Mm. Do you see that as part of your role is to get people, management people, enthusiastic? Um, absolutely, and 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 in terms of that commitment, you know, if I, if I was to look at the content that we've produced and the events that we've delivered over the last two two years, um, you know, we could go back further, but I think really that 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 we've all you know, over these last three years, um, 
reevaluated. Um, you know, we, 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 you know, we've had sort of campaign messages around advertising becoming purpose before profit. You know, as publishing organisations and content creators, we should be putting purpose before profit. You know, this is this has been coming for a while. But I think yes, my my, my responsibility and my role is to make sure that we present the very best examples and connections to the very best practitioners to help people who have that will and that want to support um, them in that journey. And, um, you you know, I I don't want to come across as naive, but certainly within the community that, that, that I work with, the, those creators of, of quality content online, I don't see anybody within that community pushing back on this. I don't see... Yeah. I do absolutely see what you're saying. You know, one can concur. A lot of these organisations um, are, are, are run by people like you and myself who have been in the industry for 30-odd years and risen through the ranks. But that's not to say that we're not capable of recognising the limitations of what um, uh, what came before and what the opportunities, and they are opportunities going forward, whether it takes a... 57-year-old white middle-aged man who runs a newsroom to, 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 to identify and then embrace this opportunity, or whether it's because of a more diverse newsroom where people are representing other opinions and the collective of that newsroom recognise the opportunity. But there are opportunities. We can't change the world overnight, but... Uh, I am I would like to believe, I try to be positive, um, and, and I'd like to believe that there is a genuine desire um, from even within those communities who have, if you like, had limited views uh, around certain things to expand their knowledge and to, to embrace um, um, other opinions so that they can become better balanced and better informed about their own approach and application in life. So that we've got a, an enormous amount to do, but I don't think that the fact that, um, you know, people like your, yourself and myself who, who may sit in a certain box, um, that there is, there is nothing out there that says that we shouldn't be having the conversation. In fact, to the contrary, we, you know, we, we have a responsibility to not only open our own minds, but, but, but to challenge our peers and those, um, those around us that, if you like, look uh, and, and, and behave in similar ways to make sure that, that, that we encourage everybody to open their eyes a bit and, and reconsider. I, I read one of the things on your site where it says it's ageism, the biggest ism in the world. Um, is it? Well, it, it kind of is, actually. Ali Owen, uh, again, at the Brixton... Um, finishing school, I think, is the person that that sort of identified that uh, as be, as being, you know, quite genuinely a a, a problem. Um, and I think what's really interesting is is what people are are doing to address that um, in terms of um, recognizing that the opportunity. I think there is. Um, I think at the time when Ali talked about it, she used examples. Um, she talked about the work that they're doing with um, Brixton are doing with WPP's Uninvisibility Project, and it's uh, I think it's an initiative called Visible Start. You know, we know 
through the most recent census that we're an aging population um, that works longer. And yet within our industry, um, at the age of about 45, there's, there's a, a very sincere risk of, 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 of cutoff. Um, and um, an initi- initiatives like Visible Start is, is looking at how um, we can create opportunities for people to, if you like, reskill and um, provide value back into the industry. I mean, we, we, if we're talking about representation, surely, obviously, um, that, that's got to include people that, that have um, fantastic skills that are potentially transferable, that, that could, with relatively simple investment in time in terms of time and, and, and resource upskill digitally but they're bringing in other values and uh, other knowledge and information that again help a a, a diverse and inclusive um, workforce um, be more rounded and more balanced I think this um, initiative was perhaps initially motivated by the fact that but for certainly women within the workforce, they, they they were sort of facing a bit of a double whammy, you know, the both ageism and yeah. sexism. And I think that one of the one of the other sort of embarrassing legacies of of the working world is that you know the way in which women were viewed within the market um, in the workplace, and that you know. Once that 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 lady, no no matter how promising her career might have been, and then she you know shifts her focus into in, into uh, the family that, that that she's creating, and and for some ridiculous reason, um, those those factors seem to um, compromise um, opportunity and progression for 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 that particular gender within the workforce simply by virtue of. Of being who they are, and so yeah, I think ageism is is um, is very real. But again, like when we talked about other aspects of diversity and, and inclusion, there is um, some not only strong practitioners, but some really proactive organisations, agencies in particular, provide a very good example of how. Um, they are retraining, uh, reskilling, and bringing these people back into the workforce because they recognise so many other important values that they bring. Um, if if they are as an organisation going to be truly balanced and diverse. So one of the things that I'm seeing again reading, reading the work that you guys have done around this is the idea that getting younger diverse talent in the door. Is, is not necessarily the problem. Getting them to stay is a problem. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try and get these guys to stay, but if you're bringing older people in, they may be more likely to stay. Is that a fair assumption? i tell you what, I mean, in this context, I, I, I'm not going to apply any of the sort of, you know, race, religion, gender or anything else to this because I, 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 I you know, I've got to reflect on my own career and... Um, you know, isn't part of being young about wanting to be able to sample, taste and explore all the, the wonderful things that that life can offer you. And uh, I can at- just about remember. That. <laughs> 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 yeah, indeed. But, you know, it, it's also about finding out who you are what you want from life and the balance of that. So, of course, you know, a younger workforce is is naturally going to sort of 
be more open to um, further exploration and and, and, and experimentation with new experiences. Um, So there may well be an argument, and someone like Ali Hearn probably can provide me a statistic to back this up, whereby the suggestion is that... um, um, an older employee is probably somebody that is less likely to jump about um, um, because they want that 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 stability and continuity in their life, whereas perhaps a younger employee isn't ready for you know that 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 continuity that settling down a little bit. Mm. They they you know so I I don't know I don't know how to answer that Peter because I don't think I'm educated enough to give you a a genuine insight of whether there's there's anything more to it. But I, I, I do, you know, I do think it does talk slightly to the point where, where you're saying, you know, the diversity and inclusive strategies sort of are easier to address at entry level. I think we, we need to, again, bring back the point that attracting them into the business is one thing but retaining them in the business really comes down to the fact that they feel that they are both heard and represented you know what we're talking about here it applies to everybody and 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 i i do i do worry sometimes that you know even expressions like diversity washing and everything it 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 sort of infers that that people are uh, are just about the ticking the box, and um, and I actually like to believe that that isn't. Of course, it does happen, but but I like to see the good in people, and and I think that that when I talk to the community we represent, the will and the good is there. I agree with you. I think most people are genuinely caring and want to see other people doing well. We all make mistakes. Good God, God yeah. I made enough of that. Well, it's having it's having the metal and 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 the maturity to to admit to your mistakes, and and I think that that that's that's key here. And I think that what practitioners you talked about, Gary earlier. I remember Gary sort of saying to uh, one of our sessions, "It's like you know, d- d- don't be defensive. Um, it, it, there's no point in being defensive. No one's trying to call you out here." Um, but but don't be afraid to to talk and and and, and that's how, and and learn and that's how we're going to improve, isn't it? Yeah. No. You sound optimistic that it, there's loads of work to be done, but it's headed in the right direction. Do you think is that fair? Yeah, it is fair. I mean, I I think I'd be crap at my job if I was a pessimist. And um, and 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 whilst we all go through periods in life as you grow up where you could be grotesquely cynical it's not healthy i don't like being cynical i want to see and believe the good in everyone and i have to tell you when i um i you know i talked about them earlier but but um, um when ryan brought these two graduates ryan at the mail onto the platform um to talk about their experience as as graduates coming from um underrepresented um, communities and being given an opportunity to work within a mainstream media organisation like that. When they talked, I was genuinely moved emotionally. We also ask our guests one more question. I think you might have done this before, where we ask you what's your favourite piece of media at the moment. If I'm brutally honest with you, I I love reading books. Um, and, And when I turn off my computer at the end of the evening... 
and I have my massive commute of about five foot to my kitchen, um, I do still sit down and 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 give myself a, an hour to to. Um, I think I'm the best movie producer in the world. When I read a book, the the, the vivid nature by I, mean, I I don't read anything <laughs> of any value, but um, but it takes me on a journey, and it certainly um, allows me to uh, to, to relax uh, and get into the right place. Well, there's lots going on with us at Media Voices. Esther, why don't you tell the listeners exactly what they can expect from us over the course of the year? A year is a long time, (laughs) (laughs) The next few months, I can tell you about. Uh, Yeah, we've got loads going on. Um, We're sorting through the Publisher Podcast Awards entries now, which is really exciting. There are some amazing podcasts, which... And hopefully uh, the latest series of lessons from award-winning Publisher Podcast should be coming soon, shouldn't it, Peter? Yes, Esther. <laughs> uh, so that's all coming up soon. Um, we'll obviously let you all know about that via our new email newsletter, which you can sign up for at voices.media. Our email system may have changed, but the ways you can support us have not. If you do want to forward that email across to anybody else, that really helps. You can also go to our Ko-Fi page, which allows you to donate to us on a one-off or recurring basis. And as Esther mentioned, sign-ups to the newsletter really do help us talk to sponsors, partners. So anything you can do around that would really, really help us out. And and it's a good newsletter. It's a great newsletter. For now, until next week, thank you so much for listening. And... Stay optimistic. Yeah.